And hello, welcome back. This is Honor of Kings. I'm Sean Griffin. I'm here with my co-host. Ken Heidebrecht. Sean, how's it going? Hey, it's going well, Ken. Uh, it's good to see you again this week. We are back to do more study, more digging into the Book of Enoch. It's a book that's been removed from many modern canons. And as uh, the last few weeks, we've been taking an in-depth look, going line by line at the Book of Enoch to make sure that everything we see in there lines up with the canon in our, our modern American canon of 66 that we have over here in the northern, you know, North America. So um, I've just had a great time doing this so far. We've run into a lot of fun information, a lot of parallels back to the prophets and the New Testament, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And there's many more chapters ahead in this amazing book that has been removed. And uh, it definitely doesn't go downhill. It'll pique your interest, hopefully, with each episode to come because it's it's just it exposes so many more things that aren't necessarily expounded upon in, in the 66 canonized scriptures so it's a fun journey this far sean and uh i'm looking forward to what we have to discuss today yeah and today we're jumping right into chapter 15 and we'll probably go through uh, the next four or five chapters uh, before the end of the episode um so what we just as a quick little recap you know last week we saw, what did we see? We saw, you know, the sentence being pronounced to Enoch. Enoch had to go take that to Azazel and then to the rest of the fallen rebellious angels. Um, you know, I, I had to catch myself. I used the word fallen. And then we talked about this, I think maybe last episode or two episodes ago, where, um, you know, that term is kind of carried over from mainstream church, from our traditions growing up, that we use the term fallen because they've, they've left their initial position that was given to them in creation and now they're doing bad things right they're doing bad deeds of wickedness and so we consider them fallen but it's not like they've actually just you know literally fallen from heaven and can't get back up right so this is the the majority of the angels that we saw being punished or being given a sentencing that was going to be carried out over time for their punishment for their rebellious deeds that um that takes place, and those particular ones cannot get back to heaven, but can, it seems like, this Azazel character can still get back to heaven. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I agree that that's kind of what the context is revealing to us, and I, I, I definitely agree about how we've been ingrained with this fallen angel terminology. Um, you know, in previous chapters, it did say that the uh, Watcher angels had descended during the days of Jared. Actually, that's I think that's talked about in Jubilees, but, you know, they were on the earth trying to teach men instruction heavenly um, instructions and stuff like that and they were already on the earth when they started to decide to form a pact so it's not like they fell like you said and were booted out of heaven never to return they were already on the earth and at some point they decided to make you know an oath and a pact amongst themselves to go inter intermingle with human women and azazel wasn't one of those that formed the pact so yeah, I agree, Sean. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, from what, what I could glean from the last few chapters, you know, uh, this entire story, most people that are familiar with it, they know that fallen angels took wives. That's what we read in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. And their offspring were called the Nephilim. So these were giants. And we talked about in, in episode 2, you know, we kind of went over some possible theories of how giants are created. And so that was interesting. But at more than anything from the judgment that was given out, it looks like Azazel didn't take a wife. 
it looks like he kind of stayed away from that activity. He, it does mention all the other bad activity he was doing, teaching unrighteousness, teaching things to, you know, what was considered the secrets of heaven. He was teaching those to men, and it says the men were striving to learn them. So that definitely is deserving of punishment. But it seems like he's not quite punished in the same time frame that we get with the other angels. And that's um, and that is why, you know, I, I shared my speculation in previous episodes that I believe this is the Satan character that we see running around through the modern American canon of 66, all the way up to Revelation. Um, and so if you guys haven't seen those previous episodes, make sure to go back. I think it's at episode two and three um, where we kind of dissect that idea and we give you the, the references in Enoch that explain that with the scriptural references as well. So, um, but this, this, new, this new episode here, we're in chapter 15, and we're going to be still dealing with some of the things that these watchers have done. Um, and it's going to kind of, you know, go over some of the finalization if you can. So he's going to repeat some of the charges against them. But we'll just jump right in. Uh, Ken, do you want to start reading or would you like me to? Yeah, I can start reading. I just want to add a, a quick little bit more uh, just background just so our viewers can understand where we're, you know, what we're being talked about here in this uh, chapter. Um, Enoch is at, I believe it was the west side of Mount Hermon. And he's in, he's sleeping and he's taken up in a vision. So he's taken up into heaven and or the heavens above the firmament. And he's seen a house that's made of crystal and it has flame all around it and he's going through it. And then he sees a throne and he sees a larger habitation with tons of fire and all these different descriptions that we talked about in the previous episode. So when we start in chapter 15 here, he's essentially nearing Yahweh's throne and, and, and having a conversation with Yahweh. So that's the kind of the context going yeah. into this chapter is that he's asleep and in a vision right now up in heaven. So I just wanted to give our viewers that bit of detail there before we start going. And he answered and said to me, and I heard his voice, Fear not, Enoch, thou righteous man and scribe of righteousness. Approach, approach hither and hear my voice, and go say to the uh, watchers of heaven who have sent thee to intercede for them, you should intercede for men, and not men for you. Wherefore have ye left the high, holy, and eternal heaven, and lain with women, and defiled yourselves with the daughters of men, and taken to yourselves wives, and done like the children of earth, and begotten giants as your sons? And though ye were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, and have defiled yourselves with the blood of women, and have begotten children with the blood of flesh, and as the children of men have lusted after flesh and blood, as those also do who die and perish. Therefore have I given themselves or sorry, therefore have I given them wives also that they might impregnate them and beget children by them, that thus nothing might be wanting to them on earth. But you were formerly spiritual, living the eternal life, and immortal for all generations of the world. And therefore I have not appointed wives for you, for as for the spiritual ones of the heaven, in heaven is their dwelling. And now the giants who were produced from the spirits and flesh shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men, and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on earth, and evil spirits shall they be called. As for the spirits of heaven, in heaven shall be their dwelling. But as for the spirits of the earth, which were born upon the earth, on the earth shall be their dwelling. And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth, and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst, and cause offenses. And these spirits shall rise up against the children of men, and against the women, 
because they have receded from them. Quite a bit there, buddy. Yeah, I've got so much to, to ask you about in this, this chapter here. It's a lot of fun stuff. Ken, just right off the bat, you know, the thing that sticks out about this chapter that you just read is verse seven, because verse seven, uh, there's a couple things in this chapter that I would like to mention, but verse seven, I, I want to address first because, you know, I'm going to read it again real quick. It says, and therefore I have not appointed wives for you for as the spiritual ones of the heaven in heaven is their dwelling. Now this is God talking about the angels, right? He did not give them wives because they are dwelling in heaven. Now, to me, we see a direct correlation of this with Jesus's words in Matthew 22, and it's in verses 29 and 30. Now, the backdrop of that little setting in Matthew 22 is the Sadducees come up to Jesus. They have this this question they're trying to, you know, they're trying to basically test him, and they ask about this, you know, they're Sadducees, and um, they're asking him about the resurrection, which is kind of ironic since they don't even believe in the resurrection. They're kind of being trolls about it, but at the same time, they had they put what they think is a gotcha question to Jesus. And they say, look, there's a lady, she's married, the husband dies. So then according to law, you know, she marries the brother. Well, that brother dies. She marries another brother. A whole bunch of brothers die. There's like seven brothers. They all die. So then at the resurrection, whose wife will she actually be? Now, this is a point where they think they got Jesus because they're, you know, they think it's absurd that there's going to be a resurrection. But Jesus then tells them, you err, not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. For at the resurrection, we neither marry nor are given in marriage, but will be like the angels in heaven. Now, this is him basically saying to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, for one, he's reprimanding them on their lack of knowledge of Scripture, but he's also quoting, in my opinion, he's pulling directly from this content here in Enoch chapter 15, verse 7, where it says the angels are not appointed wives, because like it said, like he says, at the resurrection, we'll be like the angels. Right. We also actually see that in Second Baruch. I think it's chapter 70, 72 or 73. But we, you know, that's for a different Honor of Kings episode when we go over Baruch. Right. But um, he's also pulling from Baruch because it says that the resurrection will be made like the angels. Right. Uh, directly. But here in Enoch 15, 7, it's telling that the angels were not appointed wives because they were inhabitants. Their dwelling was in heaven and not on the earth. Mankind was given a wife because his dwelling was on the earth. So at the resurrection, we're going to be inside the heaven, right? Because what, what is the definition of heaven? It's Genesis 1, verse 6 through 8. It's the firmament. And this kingdom of heaven is within the new Jerusalem, which is the, you know, the same walls or the same type structure of the firmament, which is called heaven. So we're inside the boundaries, both spiritually, literally, and geographically in the kingdom of heaven. When the new Jerusalem comes down as resurrected saints, that's our inheritance. That's our home. And he and at that point, we're not given wives because we're like the angels, right? We're eternal. So to me, in the context of what Jesus just said right there, he's he, he's reprimanding the Sadducees saying, you're in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. And then he goes to quote from Enoch 15. So to me, Ken, and I could be wrong, but to me, is this saying that Enoch is scripture? Is the Messiah calling Enoch scripture? It seems to make a whole lot of sense, John, because, I mean, this is something that I've looked into, um, looking at the, the Old Testament prophets and their writings, and nowhere do we find anything about angels and not being able to take wives and, and stuff like that. So I don't, I mean, the logical conclusion would be, well, the one book that really talks about it um, in, in detail, specifically this chapter that we're in right now, 
would make sense that this is this is uh, what Yeshua could be referring to. I really think it is. I yeah. think that we've got, um, in my opinion, we've got a strong piece of evidence here for um, the Messiah considering Enoch's scripture, uh, which, you know, in my opinion, that's why Jude's quoting it as well in his little epistle letter. And um, Jude being the half-brother of Jesus. And so I think that it's uh, it's just very, very strong you know, evidence here that that Enoch was considered scripture, besides the fact that it used to be in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like a modern thing, right? Well, we don't we think that, you know, it's not a part of the Bible, but it was in many of the canons in the past. So just only recently is it not in the Bible. So if we were born basically in like 1500 before 1526, if we were born and we saw a collection of, of books called scriptures, it would have Enoch in it. That's right. We wouldn't even be having the debate to think, is it scripture or not? Um, but here we are now, and we're overcoming some uh, some bad teachings. So that's one of the points of why we, we wanted to do not only this show, but we want to start off with this particular book because it does line up with scripture so much. Yeah, amen. And uh, yeah, there's a lot in here. Um, so at the beginning of this chapter, it talks about how the watchers should have been the ones interceding for men and not Enoch or men interceding for them. That's, that's an interesting little thing there. It's almost, it, <laughs> it just shows, well, what, angels intercede for us. That was one of their, their um, characteristics upon their creation was that they're to intercede for us and not us for them. And it's just a, a funny kind of reversal that we're seeing here that Enoch's doing that for them. And they're getting chastised for that. Um, now, if I can interrupt you real quick, just because someone asked in one of our previous videos, they had a great question. And they asked about, um, they, they actually, you know, are against the book of Enoch being valid. And they came on one of our previous episodes in the comment thread. And they were saying that, um, you know, this idea that angels are supposed to intercede for men is glorifying angels because only Yeshua intercedes for us, right? Only Jesus, only the Messiah. So what I would lovingly say for anyone who's heard that, that type of um, complaint against Enoch is that you ha we have to define our terms properly. And this, and this chapter is actually helping us do that because it's showing the, the, the strong difference between those in the flesh on earth and those that are of the spirit in heaven. And that's actually another point I'm going to make about this uh, this chapter here in a few minutes. But as far as interest, using the word interceding, like you just talked about, right? That the angels are being reprimanded saying, you know, why is he not coming to intercede for you guys? You guys should be interceding for them. Now, we already saw that happen, didn't we, Kim? We already saw yeah. in chapter 13 or 14, the good angels came and they interceded for mankind saying, Father, here's what's going on. Are you going to do something? Now, I want to make sure that people understand that when you're watching this, there's a difference between going and reporting something or going and asking for something in lieu of someone else and actual biblical lawful intercession, creating the justification or atonement. So this is where people are kind of mixing up their terms, and I hope that we can rightly define the terms in the context that they're used throughout Scripture. So when we see the word intercession, like in, in 1 Timothy 2, 5, where it says that, you know, there's uh, one God and one man and one man that intercedes you know, between man and God, and that's Jesus, the Messiah. Um, and Hebrews 4 talks about Jesus, our high priest, who intercedes for us, right? Yeah. Now, the context of that is he's doing it lawfully, 
through the through the ordinances and the instructions of the law of God as a priest, and that type of intercession, he's not going before the Father and saying, hey, have you seen what they've done? He knows what they've done. He received the confession of what they've done. That was the point of the priest, and he's going to make atonement for them. He's going to say he's sorry for them. Please forgive them for what they're doing. He's not going just to report the details and saying, you know, um, hey, will you consider not judging them, right? Because we know that we're all going to stand before judgment. Those who are who are in Christ are going to be judged unto good deeds, right? Um, because thankfully we we are, if he chooses us in the resurrection, right, through faith and obedience to Christ, we're, he chooses us in the resurrection, we get raised to life, we're judged on our good deeds. Some will, some will last, some will get burned up like chaff, as Paul explains, but we're still saved, right? Those who rejected God and rejected his Messiah and rejected his commandments and ordinances, they're judged unto condemnation. So this whole concept of lawful intercession to create atonement and justification before the Holy Father for us is a concept for mankind and those who dwell on the earth. Angels were not given the option for atonement or justification. So when Enoch is going before the Father, all he's doing is taking their petition, remember? So he took their, now, yes, yes, he, they did write down their deeds, and they were bad. And they did, this is what we read in the previous chapter in last episode. They wrote down their deeds, um, and they wrote this long petition out. And Enoch was going to go try to, you know, say, look, here, they wrote down everything they did. They're admitting they're bad, you know, can you consider not judging them? And that judgment was denied, right? They were not going to have mercy or rest uh, from their, their transgressions because, they're going against the group. This is not the lawful way. A man cannot intercede lawfully for angels. They're not the same class. They're not the same being. You would have had to have someone like Michael intercede for his fellow brethren, someone that's still set apart, who's, you know, that was the whole point of a high priest amongst men was that he was righteous in his deeds and therefore set apart and could, you know, be cleansed in the process that was given through the law to make atonement for his fellow brethren. This is why Jesus is so important. We have eternal, we have a high priest who's eternally sanctified, who's eternally perfected. He's eternally set apart. He's never going to be corrupted or mess up. So he doesn't have to go through any sanctification, purification rituals. He'll always be able to mediate before the Father on mankind's behalf, not on angel kind, on mankind's behalf. So this is why we've got these things out of order here. And that's what it's talking about. And the angels, when they went in the previous chapters, when the angels went before God, they weren't interceding for atonement. They just said, have you seen what's going on with mankind? Are you going to do anything? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So in the context of what we're seeing here where God's reprimanding these, these watchers saying, Enoch, you know, shouldn't be coming to me on your behalf. You should be coming to, to me on his behalf or on mankind's behalf. Like the other good angels did, so we have a we have a precedence for this concept and for the context of these angels and why it's it's using the word intercede, and it's not the same as a high priest interceding for mankind. I just hope that people kind of understand the difference there because there is a huge difference, and um, that way they're not thinking that this is teaching some kind of uh, you know bad doctrine of some sort. Yeah, that's a great explanation, Sean, for sure. Um, of yeah. verse four here, um, and it says, "And though you were holy, spiritual, living the eternal life, um, here we're getting a, a definition of what it means to be spiritual, right, Sean? I know, like Christian, 
you know, Christianese talks about being spiritual, has your spiritual walk and we're spiritual beings and this and that. But this gives us a direct reference to what it means to literally be spiritual, right? Living the eternal life as these spirit beings were. And that's how they were created right from the outset. Um, you know, they, they didn't have to do what we are, what we do as humans, you know, in flesh and blood die and then hope for the resurrection to come so we could be made into spiritual beings. Um, so that's, that's, I just wanted to throw that out there, but, um, I, and this is the, the other point to, to add on to what you're saying. This is the other point I wanted to bring up because it goes perfectly with what you're saying that do you see the difference here in this, in this verses where it talks about how the angels are, you know, their heaven is their dwelling. They're called spiritual ones, but it says they, in verse four, like you were reading, they begot the children with the blood of flesh as the children of men and have lusted, lusted after flesh and blood as those who die and perish. And, um, Therefore, have I given them wives? This is verse five. Therefore, have I given them wives also that they might impregnate them and beget children by them, thus that thus nothing might be wanting to them on earth. Um, and of course, this was not. This was talking about um, uh, the the angels. All right, he's talking to the angels. We we already know this. But what I'm saying is, I, I think it's up in verse three. He's talking about you begot these giants. And what I'm getting at is that. It's making a difference between the spiritual beings, which are angels, and then the fleshly beings, which is mankind. But if we look down here at verse 8, it says, Now the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh. So from this unnatural union of a spiritual being and a fleshly being, they shall be called evil spirits upon the earth, and on the earth shall be their dwelling. So I think it's interesting because it's verse 9 says, Evil spirits have proceeded from their bodies because they are born from men. And it's almost as if these Nephilim, these giants that were created, they weren't regular flesh and blood. Is am I you think I'm on the right track there, Ken? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Yeah. So that that puts them in a different class altogether. Um, they're not gonna have, you know, uh, they're they're created from oh, well not created, but I mean they're they're birthed, if you will, from the outset with a non- that's not the same type of body that you and I have. Okay. Yeah, we, we know that through some of the descriptions they've had. I mean, yeah. six fingers, six toes, double rows of teeth. I mean, they're incredibly huge, strong. Like the, the capability of their strength is just, you know, <laughs> unheard of. So they're, they're very different. And, you know, now in the promise of the resurrection, we're going to be made into spiritual beings, right? Meaning that we're not going to have the same type of body that we have in our corrupted nature now remember when jesus goes in john 19 he goes or i think it's in john 20 to to into the locked room with the disciples and he presents himself to the disciples and they're freaking out right they don't know what's going on and thomas says and you know he goes up to thomas and says look put your these are the scars on my hand put your finger on my side and he says a ghost or a spirit does not have flesh and bone like you see i do now he doesn't say flesh and blood. He says flesh and bone. So there's that could be a whole other study. But the point is, we see Jesus doing things that a normal human can't do, right? He's just manifesting and disappearing at will. Um, he's obviously, you know, <laughs> able to fly. He just ascends into heaven. You know what I'm saying? So he can just um, he's mastered the downward pull and he can overcome it at will. Um, and it makes me wonder if this was any kind of inkling, because we see these same traits 
when people have, you know, uh, in scripture, when we see angelic visitations, we see the same traits of these things happening, of having mastery over the creation where you can just appear and disappear at will or fly, right? But yet they can still eat, right? They can still do things just like Jesus did. He, he said, I'm hungry. You got some fish? So he still he still is eating, and but he's doing these supernatural things because he's now birthed of the Spirit. And we that's a whole study on the first resurrection and all the details that go into that. And I think that um, it's imp probably important to understand that is what I'm getting at because we've got spiritual beings having, you know, copulation with fleshly women, but what's produced from them is what seems to be an evil spirit, a spiritual being. And so I I'm wondering if that's, you know, the big, di the big difference with why there was no mercy shown to the Nephilim. Because their physical anatomy can't even, um, it's almost as, I, and, I, and I don't want to take this too far, because we see some Old Testament references where it looks like Nephilim, or people from tribes of Nephilim, don't behave the same way, or, or at least um, are able to, to follow God, if I could put it like that. Yeah, well, it's interesting, because you have like people like Abram being confederate with you know, Mamre and other, what it seems like are giants and has friends as giants. So it, it just seems like someone who's holy and righteous and, and lived according to the law, um, being in these types of relationships and, uh, you know, even Solomon inscripting potential giants to, to help with his building plans. Well, that's, and that's, that would where would be where I would say, um, we should go back to, my theory in chapter in episode two of that there's more than one way to make a Nephilim since the word Nephilim is uh, from the, you know, um, kind of comes from this idea of um, the word giant, I should say, comes from the, the Greek and Latin version of gigantis, right? Which is the word translated from Nephilim. Um, I'm not sure it has always entirely to do with height, the, the connotation in our modern English vernacular refers to Nephilim as a giant, and we just immediately assume their height is that. But the original word, because that's our modern connotation we've applied to the word giant, but the word Nephilim is possible that it's a type of union between um, an angel and a, and a fleshly human woman. Okay, I'm sorry, I'm trying not to belabor this, but I'm trying to get to this idea here. You have to parcel this out carefully because in the, in the post-flood reality, the Nephilim are a little bit different, it seems like, okay? Um, not only is the literal first time it's mentioned in Numbers 14 in the Hebrew, the, the spelling is slightly different, but it's, um, and that's when you dig deep into the Hebrew, but we have this idea that the Nephilim can actually be manufactured without angelic seed, so, so the, the initial premise, because people read Enoch and they think, and they'll read a chapter like this, and they'll see that flesh, you know, that, um, what was it say, verse uh, verse 8, the giants who are produced from the spirits and flesh, we call evil spirits on the earth. Um, and in verse 9, evil spirits produced from their bodies because they're born from men and from the holy watchers is their beginning and primal origin. They shall be evil spirits on the earth and evil spirits shall they be called. So what I'm saying, though, is, I think it's it's interesting and it's possible since we know that there's more than one way to make a tall person that 
that the post-flood Nephilim could have been genetically manufactured or genetically engineered to be taller, stronger, and bigger, but not being literally a result of the union between an, a spiritual being and a woman of flesh. Does that make any sense? Yeah, for sure. I, I actually think that's uh, a plausible theory. Um, it seems like the first generation giants are a different classification, if I could say that, than subsequent ones. Yeah. Um, which, which is why we have in Jubilees and Jasher, it does mention the idea that men were taught how to combine the species and how to, which means they're doing genetic splicing. Yeah. So there's more going on here than just angels knocking up a woman. And that, that immediately doesn't create a giant. It, they could have gotten them pregnant, but then like I talked, we talked about in episode two about the whole cutting of roots and what possibly that implications and why that's thrown right in the middle of that sentence about they took wives, they, they learned how to cut roots, and then they, the women bore them giants. And so it's very possible that they were used, they could have still impregnated the woman, right? And that means that now that the, the offspring is considered an evil spirit, a spirit unnatural, right? A spiritual production unnatural, then woman's body of flesh is being used as an incubator, if you will. But then they could apply the growth hormones to make them bigger and stronger and faster, right? And, and genetically tweak them. So what I'm saying is, it's very possible we're dealing with two concepts, the seed of the angel and the manipulation of that seed once it's in the womb. So you can still do the manipulation of a regular human seed in the womb of a regular human woman, and it doesn't require the seed of an angel. Does that make any sense? Yeah, for sure. That's what I think we're seeing post-flood, which causes all this confusion uh, between the debate, you know, oh, was there a second incursion of angels? Did angels come back and Another version of them rebel. Well, the father never tells us about that anywhere. So yeah. Huge theological problem of silence. Yeah. And we're told, Sean, that, um, you know, the 500 year uh, judgment upon the watcher's sons, these giants, these first generation giants, they were to kill each other off. And then the flood would eventually wipe everything. Right. And yeah. that from that, these unclean evil spirits would come forth. And then after the flood, and then in Jubilees, these same spirits are tormenting Noah and his sons and their children and all this stuff. And then we're told that essentially nine tenths of those um, unclean spirits are put in a prison and one tenth is kept on earth to, to, you know, mess and to tempt and to do what, what they do to humans. But that's the only number of, of demons or unclean spirits, uh, evil spirits that we're told about. So then someone like a, a Goliath or, or, you know, any of the other mentions of giants, when they die, it doesn't say that they become unclean spirits that roam, that join the ranks of these other ones, right? So I right. think I think we do have a different classification where it's a direct union of angel and, and the daughters of men creating these first generation giants that were, were destroyed. They became unclean evil spirits, but then subsequent giants that were, like you said, genetically manipulated to, to be created. Um, I don't see them as, as essentially being unclean or evil spirits upon their fleshly death. So that would create them a, 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 in their own kind of classification in a way. Yeah. Now, don't get us wrong. Uh, the Nephilim are still considered in the, in the post-flood reality of the Old Testament to be um, not normal humans, yeah. right? Genetically corrupted to the point where God considered them completely evil and should be wiped out. Um, now, there is a strong case to be made from the book of Jubilees about the descendants of Canaan and why the land is even called Canaan. 
because uh, it says in chapter, I think it's chapter eight or nine, um, when Noah got, gets off the boat and they're, he's talking with Japheth, Ham, and, and, and Shem about the land being divided up. And they, this, this would correlate in the time of Genesis 10 with the table of nations and all the descendants and everything. So in Jubilees, it's saying when they were dividing up the land, they made a pact and a covenant with each other. All of Noah's sons and their sons' sons saying, you know, once we decide who gets which portion of land, we're not taking each other's land, right? So like Shem's going to get this area, Ham will get this area, Japheth gets over here. And then once we're done, you don't, you don't go live in your other brother's land. Like that's his land. They made oaths to not break that and placed curses on themselves if they did. They did. And that's what Canaan, the grandson of Ham, he broke that oath. And he went and lived in Shem's land, which is what we now consider the, mon- the land of Canaan, which is referenced in the rest of Genesis and the rest of Jubilees as the land of Canaan, because he went and took it. And, this, and he was actually reprimanded by his family saying, what are you doing? You're breaking the oath. This is bad. This is wickedness. Get out of there. That's not your land. And he didn't. He rebelled. And he was like, no, I'm staying here. It's good land. <laughs> so this also gives us a lot of... Um, a lot of strong reasoning for, you know, that the the whole concept of what we see with the children of Israel coming out of the Exodus and how they're commissioned and tasked to go into this land and and the father drives out some of the inhabitants of the land beforehand and then the ones that remain seem to be the strongmen seem to be the Nephilim and then they're having to, to deal with those multiple cities and kings and tribes all within the land of the Canaan the Amorites and all that kind of stuff the ones that weren't driven out. Um, from the wasps and the hornets. And um, so I think that it's interesting to me that it, you see, you seem to, there seems to be uh, some things at work here, a correlation, if you will. You've got not just the, the Nephilim, again, we have to define our terms. Nephilim does not immediately equate to unclean spirit. And the word Nephilim does not immediately equate to a giant, Right. Now, we do see this concept in history and also in the scriptures and in Jasher and, and Jubilees, this idea of mixing species. So in my opinion, it's very possible that that would create not just an unclean spirit, but a corrupted spirit, a corrupted nature. Um, I don't know if this is the same type of process. Honestly, Ken, I don't know if a chimera is the same thing as what we're seeing right here in, in Enoch 15 with the angels made with women and that be considered to be an unclean spirit. I'm still studying that specific little detail out. But what I'm trying to get at is these these clans and these people groups that flourished while the children of Israel were away for over 400 years um, in the in the Exodus. Up here in the land of Canaan, they were flourishing, but they were doing occultic deeds and occultic practices. So there, it's not just the fact that they had Nephilim among them, that they had giants among them, but they also had all the practices of un- unrighteousness and wickedness that was polluting the land. And so you have multiple reasons for the father to say their sin is full. I'm going to drive them out. And the ones that aren't driven out by the natural means, you're going to go and militarily take them out. Right. And then for some of them, not all of them, but for some of them, we're going to kill everything because a man, woman, and child, they're ever, everything that's is part of them is corrupted. So just like he has the same behavior before the flood, like we see talked about in Enoch that's coming, this this pending judgment, we see that talked about in Genesis 6. 
we see here post-flood the father chooses some cities completely killed everything is killed even the animals and then it's burned to the ground right but then there's other cities they go into and they they don't kill the women and children they only kill the men right because they were only the men apparently were at the point of um that place of judgment right and then you've got specific occasions like in the days of king david where he goes and conquers the moabites because they were trying to make war with him and he goes and he measures off the moabites i think this is in second kings chapter eight he measures off the moabites and the big tall ones he kills but the, uh, the ones that were half size he leaves alive so there's what i'm saying is there's um there seems to be a standard that's being used throughout the old testament the post-flood old testament about how to deal with the descendants of the nephilim and it wasn't just with a you know broad brush it's with surgical precision and this is where they're instructed by the father to go in and it's like they're being taught or it's maybe it's already common knowledge to the people of that day what makes an Ephilim, what makes a giant, what makes a chimera, which ones are good and bad, how to tell the difference, you know, about as far as like what level of corruption they've reached, if they can be salvaged or not, if I could put it like that, right? <laughs> I know it sounds a little a little crass, but that's um, because what we're reading in Enoch is the beginnings of all this tomfoolery, the beginnings yeah. of all this concept of being able to corrupt your nature to where you, um, you're, you're creating severe judgment being brought on you. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure, man. And the alternative um, mainstream teaching to what you're, you know, nicely describing here always rubbed me the wrong way. You know, when I picked up a Bible and was able to comprehend what I was reading, seeing that the Israelites were commanded to do these devastating things to these seemingly, yes, pagan, but innocent people for no real good reason other than, you know, what we're taught that, they, they, they are sinners and, you know, God is right in, in commanding them to go in and root them out of the land. And they're just sinners, they're pagans, you know, even though it doesn't sound good, we just have to believe that, you know, God is just and he knew what he was doing. And, you know, that's an okay explanation, but it, just, it didn't work for me. It just seemed like merc merciless and, and just not who God is, you know, who I understood God to be. But coming into research in the Nephilim and, and the book of Enoch and, and things that you're just discussing here, it helped me understand and appreciate more the love of my father, you know, and that he, he does do things. Yes. For a reason. And all the time it's for likely reasons that we didn't really understand to begin with. As long as you press into the word, you'll start to see that there's more context. Yeah. And it just, it helped me out with my walk. I was able to see the father in a different light. Um, since understanding that these a lot of these Canaanite tribes were were Nephilim, um, and that's to me, if we had the Book of Enoch before we read Genesis through Deuteronomy, we probably would have had a greater context to understand that where evil spirits came from, and you know how these things were called Nephilim, and then just to begin the process of digging into this idea of rightly defining the terms the Father gives us, and then understanding that there are evil spirits on the earth to afflict and torment and oppress. Um, well, that's a fun thing to, to do, Sean, is you know, when you ask someone who, you know, who may go to a church or whatever, you ask, you know, what are demons and where do they come from? Yeah. No one knows how to respond other than the typical mainstream answer, which would be, well, the, they're, you know, they're probably fallen angels or, or, you know, something to that effect. And they don't know. 
And it's not, and I, I, it just doesn't work in terms of God doesn't leave us without information for things like demons, right? These things that can come into a body and possess a person. That's right, man. So, you're, you're, you're leading into my, my last point on this chapter is perfect. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So I just encourage people who are still skeptics out there that may be watching to really consider, you know, some of these questions of where do these demons come from that Jesus is dispossessing in the New Testament? And uh, they didn't just randomly show up and Yahweh didn't just create them. Some people are saying that, you know, unclean spirits, he created these things from the beginning. That's, that's not what we're told in any of the creation descriptions in multiple books that give us information about his creative efforts. And this is is the answer here in Enoch. This is the yeah. best plausible answer. And I think uh, we need to run with this one. But Sean, real one quick. thing I wanted to add real quick before we move on, unless there's more that you want to discuss here. Yeah, I um, just, uh, before you jump to another topic, I just wanted to real quick uh, just say thank you so much for bringing, bringing that up, right? Because I've seen that as well about people that are talking about the Father created these evil spirits. The only thing that we see the Father creating is good. Yeah, amen. Those things he created that were initially perfect and good corrupted themselves according to their own free will. Or, you know, not all of them did, but the ones that did, they did it by their own free will. God did not create, and people want to take out of context places like in Isaiah and different Jeremiah where it says, I'm God, I create good and I create evil, right? Well, the context of that is talking about judgment. And many times the word evil in the Old Testament is used to discuss God's judgment on him. And it basically means creating calamity, creating, you know, uh, the the chaos that comes from a judgment happening in the moments of that judgment. Not that he's creating evil that we that we should be tempted by God to do evil. That's right. not the point. And not that he's created like Calvinists try to push that he's created things just to be destroyed because their initial their whole purpose was to be evil to begin with. No, no. He create everything he created, angels, man, animals, all of creation, was good to start. And then upon their own free will and decisions, some of them decided to, to transgress, to be evil, right? And so yeah. that's just, it's a completely, to me, that is one of the doctrines of demons. Yeah, I, I would agree. This idea that... It's a very damaging doctrine. Oh, yeah. Because then, then you're you got people left with not knowing if they're they they're starting to question within themselves. Oh, was I created for destruction? Was I one of those? Am I created for perdition? You're like, no, man. You were created to be eternal. You're created to, to be loved by God, to be good. Yeah. You know, don't let the enemy lie to you that you know. Just so don't or don't let the demons themselves lie to you and say that you were created to be for destruction, or that to even doubt yourself for like that. No. Believe in the holy living God. He created you for eternal life. Just believe in what he's offered to us through his Messiah. Yeah. Amen, man. I agree. 100%. Right. Sorry to interrupt, brother. I just want to, I'm glad you brought that up. No, that's good. And before I move on, I just wanted to, to say that, you know, in Jubilees chapter two, I know this isn't, we're not doing a show on Jubilees here, but we keep referring to that book because it's an amazing book. And Sean and I, we've done a couple episodes previous to this uh, book in the book of Jubilees where we discuss that angels were created on day one, all types of angels. And we know that there's myriads and myriads, you know, innumerable amounts of angels. And Yahweh, when he created them, he created them to have a set number and that's it, right? But mankind, he created a man and a woman, right? 
and their their his intentions for them were to produce right to, to multiply and spread across the earth because they're flesh and blood and that's what they do whereas angels were just created that number that he wanted them from the beginning they were created and boom it was done right whereas us flesh and blood human beings needed to procreate to, yeah. to reach a number where other extra biblical decks talk about he has a set number of human beings that he wants to live on the earth before the consummation of the ages so that's a that's one of the aside from the obvious that's one of the reasons why it was, it was such a horrible horrific sin for these angels to come and mess with human beings to try to produce something that Yahweh said no I've already created you eternal you're a set number of sons that I've created you as these human beings they're meant to procreate and, and bring about a number that I want to eventually for them to reach by the consummation of the ages and they went in and mingled and tried to create their own it's this I just figured I'd throw that in there that you're that's right. one of the reasons why angels you know why they get such a horrible judgment it's because they have that number they're it whereas we're continuing to, to bring about more people to bring that number that yahweh wants for us to, to reach yeah they were like i said in last episode they were created with everything given to them perfect yeah. knowledge perfection immortal beings like like we read here and um like you're saying we were created to for we were created with potential right to grow uh we were created not fully perfected yet we were called good but yet we were still um we were still created like a child if you will you know what i mean yeah. whereas they were right off the bat given tons of authority um they were given tons of knowledge and stuff that we didn't have um and so they that's why the judgment is so much greater because like jesus said you know it's much is given much is expected and that's um that's just uh, important I hope for people to really get from this idea. What what's a unique, interesting uh, parallel, if you will, is that the angels in chapter fifteen, um, or at least the ones being reprimanded, these uh, rebellious, evil angels that came down and created women, or excuse me, created mankind, excuse me, created children from women. They took wives. They they had children by them. Don't you find it interesting? Like you were saying, right? They already had a complete number. So why are they trying to add to their number if that's the case? I, like we talked about in last episode, it's almost the women themselves were participants in the seduction, right? So it's not just the angels. Yes, the angels are being reprimanded for it. The women receive their own punishment. We see, we see that later. But um, so there's two part, two to tango, like we joked about last time, right? The, the angels and the women. But what's interesting, though, it's almost as if because they're creating their own kids. And what do we see the fallen angels in? I think it was yeah, chapter five or six. And then uh, maybe episode one or two that we were doing, we were reviewing those chapters, and it shows the things that the rebellious angels taught mankind. And those things that they taught mankind, part of that was to do battle with each other. And it makes me wonder if they're, think about it like this, Ken. What if the angels are coming down? And this has been my theory since for almost a decade now for the, for the Book of Enoch. These guys are trying to, they're clearly, they're, they're not up to any good, okay? Now, whether some, some Yazil, uh, I think I said his name right. So, what is it? Samyazil, yeah. Samyazil, yeah. okay. Whether he and his and the guys he was over um, are intentionally a part of this or not, I don't know. It, because they seem to get a different judgment than Azazel, like we talked about. And I've theorized that Azazel may be the one that influenced them 
and and Jekon and and Gadriel and some of these other guys we're going to read about later. Some of these other angels that are mentioned. This is just my theory, and we can we can either uh, find stuff later to try to support it, or just completely you know debunk it later. That's fine. But my idea here is that it seems as if because of what Azazel taught mankind, and because of how Azazel is seemed to be dealt with differently than the other angels. It's, and the other angels kind of get a much more severe punishment. Does, this reminds me of what we've seen in our own life, right? Where you see that guy who influences other people to do something and they get the punishment. He's blamed, but because he physically didn't do it, he doesn't get the same punishment. So because of righteous standards, he cannot be given the same severity of punishment that they received, even though he was implicit in encouraging them to do it. He may have even given them the idea. So we don't know. Uh, it doesn't give us that much information. It gives us a lot of information, but just not that much. So my theory, Ken, so I'm trying to, trying to set it up real quick. Is it possible that these watchers are even, whether they intentionally, it doesn't say they intentionally did this, that they just wanted to have children, that they took wives and, and beget children through them. It doesn't say exactly they wanted to do that because they wanted a bunch of big families or they wanted to propagate on the earth. That was the, the ordinance given to mankind, right, to fill the earth. But is it possible that they were convinced from the motivations that, that some of the other extra-biblical books allude to for Azazel, his motivation being that he hated mankind um, because they were created later and he was supposedly their elder? Is it possible they either shared in that motivation of jealousy towards mankind and tried to create their own race, to outpopulate mankind, and then they would have to teach mankind as well as their own race that that was growing up in the mix with mankind, how to battle each other to create that kind of, to, to again, those same practices that Azazel was employing upon them, that, that yes, some of this is conjecture, I get it, but just this idea that he's teaching mankind how to kill each other, and they're creating their own race that eventually outpopulates them, which is why we have the flood. Right? We get to the point of the flood where all flesh was corrupted except for those on the boat, except for Noah, who was considered, and of course, you know, his, his family, he's considered Tamim, which is genetically righteous. He's genetically pure. He's perfect in his generations is one of the, the generic translations we read from Genesis 6, 6-8. Uh, but this idea, is it possible? Because everything previously, all flesh, man and animals, and then all mankind, it said they had been corrupted. Is it possible they were trying to create their own race, their own breed? Now, this would do a couple of things. Um, one, not only is mankind, you know, their jealousy is being fulfilled against mankind, right? Because they don't they don't think mankind deserves all the attention and the favor that the Father's given them. So now they're diminishing the um, they're diminishing mankind greatly. But also, at the initial in mankind and his his um, diminished state and his uh, his frail and and vulnerable state was given a prophecy by the father that he would send his son, who was set apart from the beginning, to come and rescue them by becoming their Messiah and high priest, making atonement for them to be able to resurrect them later. So, is it possible they were trying to stop the Messiah from coming by outbreeding mankind so that the the Son of Man, as prophesied? could not come through the seed of man because the seed of man had been so thoroughly corrupted. You got, you, you stopped the Messiah from making it possible to, to show up and save mankind. 
is it, am I way off or is this just a no no I I I've theorized that as well where their intentions were to mess with human genetics so much to the point where a messiah it would be possible for a messiah to come in and and literally you know provide us with salvation yeah. so it, it seems like a very good tactic um, our enemies uh, you know. when you look at it from that standpoint this definitely turns all of this to being like an overarching an overarching uh, motive it goes it goes bigger than just hey that's a hot woman let's take you know I, I would like to go lay with her it becomes a little bit bigger than that because of what we're seeing you know no pun intended yeah there's giants involved but what I'm saying is just to take a wife, like, boom, you're done. It's fine. But now why are these giants oppressing mankind and using up all their resources? Why make a giant? If you can, if you've got that special tech, you know, that um, higher knowledge and you can genetically manipulate your child, why do you have to make him bigger? Yeah. What's the deal? What does it matter? To me, it was a, a military strategy, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also throw in maybe a possibility that, you know, since, since we know that those specific angels were not happy with how they were created, obviously, initially, so they wanted to come and create their own sons. Um, and they did just that. They decided, well, we want sons, too. We want to procreate, too. And we're going to do it through the only females that are around being these women on Earth. And we're going to do that. And, you know, it's, it is speculation to to say whether or not they knew what would come about through that procreation. I mean, we know what came about, but did they specifically know that these, there's going to be these massive giants who were... That's really, what I was trying to say. Yeah. Was I, I'm, that's why I was trying to break down in episode two about the, the way uh, we can, that is, is alluded to in Enoch chapter seven about how they, they took wives, they taught them the art of cutting roots, and then when the women bore them giants. So to me, it seems like you've got an unnecessary step involved. So you can just get a woman pregnant, but you don't have to learn about cutting roots in the mix of that. Yeah. So, and, and this is, again, it's a little bit of conjecture, but it's I'm doing the best I can with what's given in the context to make the, the conclusion that, to, to, to reach a logical conclusion that would fit the rest of the narrative and the rest of the context. And that's where I would say they could have impregnated women and still had unclean spirits. They didn't have to be giants. They manipulated yeah. the size intentionally. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and whether or not they were lamenting and weeping over the destruction of their sons because they had a an actual fatherly type of you know <laughs> perspective towards them, or because they were seeing their corrupt agenda going to waste. I don't know. Could be a bit yeah. of both, but yeah, I know, right? I mean, how do you? It's it's hard to hug you know the pinky finger of a forty five foot tall giant. Um, <laughs> And really have a fatherly i mean i could be wrong maybe you know people have fatherly affections for elephants but um i just think that you know yeah like you're saying there seems to be the lack of natural human interaction or that what we would consider as a normal style love and caring for this idea and especially when you've got you know titans when you've got guys that are consuming the acquisitions of men and they can't be sustained so they're becoming cannibalistic you know, were the angels, the nef the fallen angels, were they cannibalistic? It doesn't say that. No, it doesn't say that. Detailed. You know, obviously, I, I what I'm saying is like, imagine the, the paradigm. Imagine the perspective of a rebellious angel who comes from a place of righteousness. He comes from a place where, you know, he is, um, 
he was, you know, spiritual and holy and dwelling in the heaven amongst everything else that was in righteousness. There was nothing evil being done around him. And now he comes down to the earth and suddenly he kind of gets in over his head. Either either he will willingly is able to just engage in mass unrighteousness. But it doesn't say that about the angels. It just says they took wives and they taught mankind how to do some things. But it doesn't really say they were just running around doing a bunch of stuff. It attributes all the acts of like uh, of violence and uh, yeah, acts of violence that attributes them to the offspring. Now, okay. yes, the the rebellious angels could have clearly done violence if they wanted to. Um, I'm just saying it, the only the only thing it faults them on is just taking a wife, which I think is interesting. I mean, you would think that it was saying. Um, let me back up a little bit. It faults them on taking a wife, and it, and it does break down in chapter 7 and 8, or chapter 6 and 7, about how some of them taught enchantments, and some of them taught astrology, and some of them taught, you know, different workings of metals and things like that. Um, but again, you're teaching other people how to do these things. That doesn't mean you had a regular practice of them. By no means am I making excuses for the angels. I'm just trying to parcel out. What's being assigned to who in these chapters here? Because the giants, the the offspring, seem to get the brunt of the descriptions of bad stuff, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I hope I'm not going too far off on that. But it's just interesting to me because it's like um, if that was their agenda, which was to create something that was their own offspring and prodigy that would listen to them, since mankind themselves um, was also being corrupted, but they knew that they were genetically of the father and had a messiah who was going to come for them at some point so that means they always had the opportunity to repent within their heart within their mind within you know their their teachings uh, because you have people like enoch who's a teacher of righteousness right who's going around telling men to repent um uh, enoch was so impressive obviously that even the angels respected him even the rebellious angels respected him yeah. so in some manner these these rebellious angels are showing fear is what i'm getting at yeah, well, I don't know if it's the, the coming chapters ahead, but um, we're taught that these specific dissenting angels were taught reprobated mysteries that they relayed to mankind, and but they were withheld from other mysteries. I know I'm being a little ambiguous with that and probably not very clear, but that's something I wanted to ask you about when we get to it, because it seems like these angels that are teaching these things had a reprobated mystery given to them from the beginning. Um, but then weren't given, you know, the alternative to that in a way. So I, maybe I shouldn't have mentioned that right now, but we're going to be coming up. To <laughs> it's probably the Messiah. Bro. Probably Enoch 63 and 63, the Messiah was hidden away. Yeah. They, if they would have known the full story, they probably would have never disobeyed like they did. But Again, if maybe that was the thing. If you don't know the full story, it requires obedience and faith and trust. Yeah. You still got to act in righteousness, you know? Yeah. It's an idea, but we'll get to it. Uh, you want me to start with 16? Oh, I just want to say one thing about verse 11 here before we do that. Okay. Um, and it says, And the spirits of the giants afflict, oppress, destroy, attack, do battle, and work destruction on the earth, and cause trouble. They take no food, but nevertheless hunger and thirst and cause offenses. I find this interesting that it says that they take no food, even though they, they, you know, they hunger and thirst. So right away, my mind wants to jump to the situation where Yeshua and his disciples cross the, uh, the uh, lake there and, and they come across the demoniac. Mm -hmm. 
at the Gadarenes. And Yeshua dispossesses Legion. And they ask, you know, can we, can we go into those swine over there? And he says, go ahead. And they go in and they run off the cliff and drown. I'm just wondering if there's any type of, it just seems like a weird detail to, to, to say, unless there's, there's nothing, you know, behind it in terms of what demons, you know, are they're thirsty, right? It says that they're hungry and thirst, but they don't get it. So I don't know if maybe they thought that when they, they could go into the swine that they could somehow get a drink. <laughs> yeah. I've never understood how that actually plays out. If they're like feeding off the life force of the entity that they're the, the, cause they're basically a parasite is how yeah. they, um, or if they, yeah, I, I don't know because it seems, you know, what we see Jesus uh, gives us the idea that when, you know, evil spirit is kicked out of a person, um, it goes to dry and arid places and then decides he's the one that comes back to the same person um, later because he hasn't found an, another suitable home, if you will. Why dry and arid places? That seems to be a, a description associated with thirst. Yeah. Well, I always I always speculate whether or not that particular verse where it talks about them wandering in the wilderness or whatever and and you know, kind of circumventing waterless places. I, I always wondered, were they afraid of water because of the flood? You know, did they were they terrified of the fact that, you know, water killed them while they still had fleshly bodies? So is that why they seem to be afraid or were wandering around in, you know, dry and arid places as opposed to watery places? I don't know. That's a good idea. Yeah. I don't know if that's a motivator or not. That would be, um, it's interesting. Anyway, so yeah, we can move on to the next chapter there, Sean. But, um, okay. Yeah, let's just jump to 16. And chapter 16. From the days of the slaughter and destruction and death of the giants, from the souls of whose flesh the spirits have gone forth, shall destroy without incurring judgment. Thus shall they destroy until the day of consummation, the great judgment, in which the age shall be consummated over the watchers and the godless, yea, shall be wholly consummated. And now as to the watchers who have sent you to intercede for them, who have been aforetime in heaven, say to them, you have been in heaven, but all the mysteries had not yet been revealed to you, and you knew worthless ones. And these in the hardness of your hearts you have made known to the women. And through these mysteries, men, excuse me, and through these mysteries, women and men work much evil on earth. Say to them, therefore, you have no peace. Real quick, this idea of worthless ones, uh, we see that used in scripture elsewhere, also the book of Judges. Um, is a, is a big book where it uses that term emphatically to describe men who are not keeping the commandments of God. Hmm. So I think that's fun that we get this description because um, I just think that not only angels are transgressing the commandments of God and not keeping them, but also their sons, the offsprings, the Nephilim, the Elogi, the, they're, they're considered worthless ones by this idiomatic description. So yeah, that's interesting. And it, you know, context follows it up by saying the hardness of your hearts. And that's another term only use the people that are not softening of the hearts to the commandments of God, to the obedience instructions of the law. So here we have another mention of the same definition of righteousness and unrighteousness according to God's law mentioned out here for us in Enoch 16. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, Interesting. Actually, here, Sean, is uh, it is this chapter in verse two where it says, "You have 
considering in uh, with the watchers it's talking about you have been in heaven but all the mysteries had not yet been revealed to you this is what i was referring to earlier um now is this a blanket statement for all the watchers that you know or is it specific watchers or i don't know that could be um, but you know we have that uh what is it peter that talks about even angels long to look into these things yeah um that verse so, so that seems like there's some some intrigue and learning and understanding for them to to have right as kind of um you know things unfold it seems like they get surprised too and they don't know what's coming in some respects um so that's yeah i mean that's is it possible that they're told enough right just like we are we're told we're not told all mysteries all things yet but they're told enough um to know their job to know what they're supposed to be doing and then the other mysteries um is about the consummation of the ages which in where it involves the messiah you know and that's could be why it mentions later in three different places in enoch that the messiah was hidden away yeah so, and it also mentions what Paul mentions that, you know, had these principalities known that through the death of Messiah, you know, salvation would come for mankind, they wouldn't have killed, you know, the Prince of Peace. They wouldn't have done that. Oh, man, that's right. Is that in Colossians 2? What, what verse is that? Uh, I'm not sure which verse it is, but. Uh, one second. Yeah, it's. Um, I think the phrasing is something about they wouldn't have killed the Lord of glory. Yeah. No, um, hang on. I think I see it. It's in 1 Corinthians 2.8. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Yeah. So that's yeah, uh, referring, they referring to the principalities, right? That's right. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that's the previous uh, context. I'll, I'll make a slide and put it up for this, but um, because that's a great verse to consider. And that, that because we're seeing here in Enoch, not even the angels knew everything. The whole story you know and that's why the story has been unfold could be why paul talks also uh, a couple different of his epistles he talks about you know he was shown mysteries right and so you've got he, he talks about the first resurrection as being a mystery and uh i think that's interesting yeah but it seems like azazel or satan if we're going with satan being azazel when he was in the wilderness when yeshua went out there to be tempted for 40 days he he knew that certain scriptures were attributed to the son of man right so he he knew that the son of man and must have existed yeah what what's interesting in that temptation moment is that he is um tempting him with you know throw yourself down from the temple for it is written you know you will not he will send his angels to keep you from hurting your foot up on a stone or something like that but he's quoting from psalm 91 and Psalm 91, the entire context is a day of the Lord reference about the Messiah returning on the day of the Lord and the protection that he will have from the angels on the day of the Lord while he comes back to do battle. So Satan is taking out of context and misquoting that verse to him to, to Jesus to try to get him to do something and, and you know act unrighteously yeah. and or tempt God and test God. And I think that's fascinating. Well, I'm wondering, Sean, if, if the angels also thought that the day of the Lord was upon them when he came in flesh the first time. Because we know that, I mean, 
Peter well, and, and others, they all thought that, you know, we're, are you going to bring about the kingdom of God now? Or like, is this happening now? Like, you know, they had an understanding of it, but they didn't have the timing right, obviously. So I wonder if the angels also might have thought, <laughs> you know, we can crucify this guy. Yay, the day of the Lord is not coming. We're not going to. But uh, guys, you're way, 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 you know, premature here. Like, <laughs> and you're not understanding that he needs to die for these humans in order to resurrect them. Um, it's possible. Um, I, I, we definitely see that the uh, legion, the demons within the man that was chained in fetters in, amongst the tombs, I think it's in uh, Luke chapter 8, Mark chapter 5, uh, that you referenced earlier, that Jesus kicked out legion, that they, they say to him in one of those accounts, have you come to torment us before the appointed time? So they kind of knew it wasn't quite here yet. Um, how much they knew, I don't know, but they did know something. They did. Yeah. They seems to say that they knew that they weren't quite there yet. So that's true. And actually, now that we're talking about the appointed time in terms of legion and demons, unclean spirits. I mean, it talks about right here in this verse of chapter sixteen, from the days of the slaughter and destruction and death of the giants, from the souls of whose flesh the spirits have gone forth, shall destroy without incurring judgment. Thus shall they destroy until the day of the consummation, the great judgment in which the age shall be cons consummated over the watchers and the godless, etc. Right. Sounds like this is all wrapping up on the day of the Lord, right? That's I mean, right. with with these demonic entities and this this also falls in line with what we're going to read in Enoch twenty-two. I believe it's verses uh, nine through thirteen, where it talks about the day of judgment and you know the righteous and the unrighteous and who's getting judged when and what's going on there. Um, how the unrighteous will not rise on that day, but they're waiting for the the final judgment. And then, um, but this day that's referred to as the consummation of the ages, um, this seems to be throughout most of the prophets referring strictly to the day of the Lord, the, the day of Armageddon, basically yeah. Armageddon, the return of God with the angels to bring down the, the kingdom of God, the new Jerusalem, you know, so this seems to be um, that that term, that idiomatic phrase, seems to constantly be associated with it. As as we put up, I think, in our first episode, you made a nice, fun list. Um, I'll put it back up here on the screen for folks to look at. But uh, Ken put together a good list of all these phrases used of the day of the Lord at the return of the Messiah that we see often throughout the prophets and scripture. Yeah, and there's more. We need to add to that list because I've come across more. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great list, though. Yeah. All right, man. Anything else from chapter 16? No, I think that's that's pretty good. All right, do you want to pick up 17? Yeah, sure. And they took and brought me to a place in which those who were there were like flaming fire. And when they wished, they appeared as men. And they brought me to the place of darkness and to a mountain, the point of whose summit reached to heaven. And I saw the places of the luminaries and the treasuries of the stars and of the thunder and the uttermost depths where were a fiery bow and arrows and a quiver and a fiery sword and all the lightnings. And they took me to the living waters and to the fire of the West, which receives everything, sorry, which receives every setting of the sun. And I came to a river of fire in which the fire flows like water and discharges itself into the great sea towards the West. I saw the great rivers and came to the great river and to the great darkness and went to the place where no flesh walks. I saw the mountains of the darkness of winter and the place whence all the waters of the deep flow. I saw the mouth of all the rivers of the earth and the mouth of the deep. So I know we were talking about this, and I think a, a discussion outside of this, uh, 
series here, but directionally, where where is this going on? We got we got to keep in mind that at the beginning of this, where it says, "And they took and brought me to a place in which those who were there were like flaming fire, and when they wished, they appeared as men." In my opinion, that's referring to angels. Uh, they can you know take on the uh, appearance of men, but Enoch is still. He's not on the earth, right? He's still sleeping. He is on the earth, technically, but he's sleeping and he's in a vision and he's just conversed with the Most High. And now he's being taken even to, into a different place, assuming still in the heavenlies. That's right. He's, as, as far as I can tell from previous verses, he's not being taken on a tour of the land on the earth, but he's being taken on a tour of things above the firmament in the heavens yeah and it sounds like some of these inscriptions are even talking about land above the firmament right with oh, yeah. mountains and land and waters and all this other stuff it's, it's, it sounds like there's a completely different you know what we experience here the topography of our earth plane is up there and even better right and that seems like um what he's being shown here in these chapters yeah, and you know this is where you'd have in the past you'd have uh, the Norse mythology of the nine realms, you know, where you have different different places of land above each other, but um, obviously that's that's not biblical cosmology. There's even within that description, it's very different from Enoch. Yeah. But at the same time, it's interesting because you do see this this idea parallel from other people groups in the past, and this is uh, we even get this idea um, in unique ways um well I'm not, i won't go there that's for another episode so <laughs> so let's just say um all right i, I agree with you 100 on verse one i think it's angels he's looking at because this is what we also see how these angels can change forms whenever they want to yeah we actually get this promise to us in baruch that when we're made like the angels we'll be able to appear in different forms as we wish so that's a fun little thing, a nugget for people to consider. Yeah. Uh, verse two, they brought me to a place of darkness and to the mountain, the point of whose summit reached to heaven. Now, this is interesting because remember, what's the definition of heaven? We're going to have to go over this almost every time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, people need to realize that heaven is defined to us as the name of the firmament, right? It's the name given to a structure. Yeah. The word heaven is not a interdimensional place. It's not a ghost ghost town. It's not a place of wispiness, right? It's a tangible, real thing. This concept of heaven was the name ascribed to a structure once the structure was completed. And that's this is what I actually talked about in a previous uh, kingdom portion with my wife, where we were discussing in uh, Deuteronomy ten fourteen, where it talks about the heavens and the highest heavens, and it says the most high is on the highest heavens. Yeah. So. You know, this idea here is the word heaven is a firmament. So what the analogy that I use is that, you know, when you build your house, your house is made of concrete and wood and nails, plywood, sheetrock, right? Your house is made of things. When it's done, you call it a house. You don't call it, oh, yeah, I live in cement, plywood, sheetrock, and nails, <laughs> right? You don't, you don't say that. Those are the ingredients yeah. it was made of. But you, when it's done and completed, it's a home. You call it a house. So the ingredients for the creation that everything's inside of is called a firmament. And it's this hard structure that separates waters. 
and there's different layers and different levels, if you will, different floors in the building. So if the big building is called the firmament, because that's the, the, the material that it's made out of, once it was completed, God called it heaven. So this is, you know, it's just a fundamental. This is Genesis 1. So this is fundamental context to when we read things like the book of Enoch. Because that was Genesis 1 is, is the beginning of creation. So on day 2, the only thing that God made on day 2 was the structure called the firmament. And then once he was done making it, he gave it a name and he called it heaven. So this this story of Enoch is referencing different layers of the heaven. When we see the word heaven used, it's talking about different layers of the firmament. Um, I just I just hope people can really grasp this idea that the, the description of creation that Enoch goes over is completely different from the description that you and I were given in our modern society, that we're living on a ball in space and vastness of space floating around. There's no firmament in, in that in that cosmology, right? There's no, because the firmament is defined as a hard structure that separates waters from below and above and that there's levels to it and that the most high, the almighty God is at the top. That's why it's called the most high. There's directions involved. There's up, left, right, down. There's directional implications, excuse me, directional implications involved to the fundamental context that we see these things happening. So I just want people to be aware. Now, whether you choose to believe that or not, that's between you and God. But myself personally, after, you know, I jokingly call myself a firmamentalist, <laughs> right? Because after studying the firmament and it's over 400 mentions in scripture, I've come to the realization that if, unless I understand what the firmament was and what God created on day two of creation and how that applies to the rest of the story from start to finish, I'll never understand the story. Yeah, I, I agree with that, man. Let me pick your brain real quick here, since we're talking about firmaments and heavens and all that stuff and, and terminology. Um, okay, so for Genesis 1, what we have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Yeah. So when it's saying he created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, do you think that's just a general, like a, a, a general statement about what's to come within the next few days? Because Second Ezra says in chapter 638, O Lord, thou didst speak at the beginning of creation and did say on the first day. So it gives us the first day. Let heaven and earth be made and thy word accomplish the work. So if heaven is firmament and there's potentially multiple firmaments, did Yahweh create the firmaments above our firmament of day two on day one? Why would he, why would he spend day two creating the firmament when, you know, on day one, it seems like he created these other firmaments above it. And how would it contain the water if there wasn't a creation right at the beginning? You know what I mean? Okay, I see what you're saying. So you're saying, uh, what was that passage? Second Ezra 2? Second Ezra 6.38. It says specifically on day one, let heaven and earth be made. So if, if heaven is a firmament then that was created on day one, according to Ezra's. But then we're told on day two, he created the firmament. So did he create our firmament above our heads on day two only? And if so... I personally would, would stick with the Genesis timeline that the firmament was on day two, and that on day one, we just got the light that appeared, but we have um, the declaration made, you know, he made the heaven and earth um, as a 
as a summary statement, and then he expounds, because like we've talked about in previous episodes, just like in Enoch, Genesis is bad about this. It makes a summary statement, and then it goes back and expounds about what it just said. Yeah, I'm just wondering if he made the firmaments. Yeah, I, I get it. Like, I mean, not the beginning. But I just feel like we would be given that information in Genesis, since it is talking about the firmament and the day it was made. And that and also lines up in Jubilees, in Jubilees chapter 2, that the firmament was made on day 2. So the angels were made on day 1. So I see what you're saying, though, right? You're saying, well, well is it possible he made their dwelling place on day one with the angels, and then at the bottom, and then he made the ferment that goes over the earth, um, the lower level, if you will, on day two. Yeah. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, that's basically what I'm asking. It sounds like if we are gonna take that literally where heaven is a, like the firmament, a structure, and he created heavens at the beginning, and according to Second Ezra's, which I think is a, a legit book, and, and hopefully we'll get to it one of these years, um, it's, it just seems like on day one, he created firmaments for like what you just said to house his angels according to jubilees were told obviously that you know on day one they were created too so they needed a, a habitation and then on day two he separated the waters from the waters right and created our firmament to separate earth from yeah it's very it's very possible um because i always have wondered what how, where did the angels exist on day one even though it was just one day right because i think it's very literal all the descriptions are literal uh the timing's literal yeah, words in Hebrews are literal. It's a it's a, a six day creation, yeah. and even paradise. It's mentioned that paradise was, was thought of and created before it even came down for Adam to inhabit. So the Genesis one says, and on day two, when he created the firmament, divided the waters above from the waters below. That in the context is speaking of that specific firmament, because then the waters below that specific firmament is expounded upon later. That's when the dry land appeared of the earth, so that vegetation could be put upon it on day three right then the sun moon and stars were put upon it for signs and seasons then then the plant or excuse me um wait no what was day three um day three was yeah it was vegetation right was yeah i think so yeah it was before the sun right um, day day five was um the animals uh the sea animals right yeah the birds above and the sea animals and that's right. Okay. Day five was the animals. Day six was man. Leviathan, behemoth. Right. Yeah. Day five. <laughs> so what? Yeah. Sorry. Sorry for that little rabbit trail there. But what I'm trying to say is, um, that's a very good thought. We definitely want to study that out because the context of Genesis one is just talking about the earth realm. You know, our that area below the firmament and the things pertaining to what we experience in this reality with the sun and moon and stars put above the firmament. Um, in the waters above, you know, yeah. still inside the encasement of the firmament, and it's multiple levels. It's just not, you know, hanging out below the firmament, in my opinion. I know some people like to bicker on that, but there's too much involved, and there's... Um, yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I don't believe that it's below in the open air. I believe that it is in the firmament. Because it actually expounds in verse 19 that the birds fly through the open air of the open firmament. Which called the panim, the face of the firmament, but the sun and stars were not put in the open firmament, they were put inside the firmament, which in my opinion would be inside the structure that's also containing the waters above. Um, just because that's they're also running inside their circuits, and according to Enoch, there's they're going through doors, they're going through portals. Yeah. So there's there's an actual, you know, there's an actual circuit of it's almost like a um, air conditioning piping above, right? And they're moving through 
they're moving through the air vents above. You know, that's a bad description because the moon and not air. But but you know what I'm saying? It's like if Enoch talks about them going through their portals, right? Um, yeah. And that there was a tabernacle created for the sun in Psalm 19. So yeah. that's, you wonder that. Yeah, you could really be onto something, man. That's well, I'm I'm actually starting. Um, I have a channel called Hanging on His Words for you guys who don't know. And um, go like this. Well, you go like this and point to the to your picture on the background. Right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of the first videos that I'm going to be putting out is a detailed creation, six day creation video that goes through all the descriptions that we have in our canonized scriptures and extra biblical texts and a lot of the extra biblical texts mention some of the things that aren't in our, our Bibles and some really, really interesting, fascinating details. And so I just, I'm a, I'm a geek when it comes to, to that. So that's going to be one of the videos that I'm putting forth, but that's one of my speculations is that when he said in the beginning that he created the heavens and the earth, heavens were literally something that was separate to day two's firmament heaven and that he needed that for his angels and everything, his, his own throne, his own habitation and all that stuff to be there first before day two's firmament of heaven for us on the earth, which separates waters and stuff like that. But just a little, uh, little uh, shout out that, yes, I, I will be releasing a video on my channel one of these days. And uh, Awesome. Yeah, that, that would be a, a very logical answer to the idea of angels being birthed on day one. And then, you know, some of the angels that were told never leave around the throne of God. They're always there. Well, that means there would have to be a place for them to be. Yeah. A habitation. And so that would make a lot of sense. Once we get a better grasp on this whole concept of firmament as a structure. And so then we can start to see that there's, you know, easily there has to be encasements for the different er the different parts of creation. Yeah. Maybe that's a better word for it, encasements. You know, you're, you're literally... I mean, it's your it's your structure. It's so everything's put upon, you know. I'm excited to actually get to the chapters that talk about the heavenly luminaries and all their portals and gates and their circuits and and things like that. Chapter it, it can be confusing, man. It really can be, but in chapter seventy, man, we'll get there next year. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, okay. So, what else with chapter sixteen? Anything else? Uh. So I know that we haven't really dug too far down in. I mean, we've got verse three talks about the luminaries that was within the heaven that he's looking at and um, the uttermost depths where there's a fiery bow, arrows in their quiver and uh, all the lightnings. I have no clue what that's about unless that's the bow Yeshua was going to use on his return um, because it, it, it's talked about that in the prophets. Uh, I don't I know. I think it's going to be the sword that comes from his mouth. Yeah, well... It, there's other places that refer to his judgment coming back as, as with his arrows of, of fire and lightning, but um, that could just be him manipulating the creation to hit him with lightning because he's hitting them with hail that day too. Yeah, they're getting hit with a lot of things. Yeah, it says there's a tempest that goes on at the return of the Lord, which means a big storm, um, so it's very possible. Um, and they took me to the living waters, to the fire of the west, which receives every setting of the sun. What do we think the living waters is right here? I don't know. See, with this biblical model uh, research that I'm doing, I'm wondering if the living waters is all outside of the firmaments. And you, that's exactly what I was thinking. It's the it, waters that the firmament encases and supports and holds up. And yeah, and this is where my other research on the firmament would come into play, where it's considered the firmament of power, and that water up there is electromagnetically, excuse me, electrically charged, like electromagnetic charged 
waters. And that's why, um, and this is going to sound like a wild statement for those of you who haven't studied this out, but that's why the moon is the shape that we see it because it's literally been fried. It's been it's sitting up there in electrically charged waters and whatever the substance is of material that makes up the moon, that's the ripple effect that's caused over it because it's sitting in pure power. And so it's just, uh, and that's what also gives us the effects of electromagnetism that creates our density and buoyancy that we experience below the firmament. And which in my opinion is why nothing in this, nothing below can penetrate above. Only he can open it up from above. We can't get up through it because it's too powerful. It's it's pure energy just radiating. Yeah, in my I, I agree. And there's some really good video footage of um, you know things like the moon and stars. The moon, in, in particular, where you know this one guy documented over a series of different nights, he caught lunar waves. He's calling them, where it just looks like literally a wave goes over the moon and. It's just fascinating when you think about all the descriptions of, of you know, our, our created Earth model and what's above the firmament of heaven and waters. And <laughs> we don't know. We have no idea. I mean, we have good good understanding through what God's told us in his word. But what, so what men have told us. What you're looking at on screen right now for the viewer is one of those actual waves that was caught by this uh, astronomer with his high power telescope as he just basically was filming the moon for four or five years every day. That's all he did. And he would catch these quote unquote anomalies. He didn't know how to explain them because he didn't know the biblical, the biblical model of creation. He's still coming at it from a heliocentric mindset, right? And he's, he doesn't know why it looks like a wave of water going across the moon. We know why. It's because Genesis 1 tells us that there's water above the firmament on which the moon's, the sun and stars are placed. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not a big surprise if you know if you've studied the scripture of what you're looking at. But this is actually being caught on camera. Now, Ken, what I think is interesting is that the guy who filmed this, his YouTube channel was taken down. Yes, it was. By YouTube. Yep. He was censored by YouTube because they claimed, because he was filming this, that he was pushing a hoax. So yeah. I want just to marinate on that for Censorship at its best, Sean. Not just the censorship part, but the reason for the censorship of a guy films what the Bible describes when looking at the moon, and he's and and the powers that be silenced him and said he was pushing a hoax. Yeah, and not only him, Sean. There's been other people across the earth that have done the same thing. That's right. There's they've many caught people. the same thing. Yeah, more than just that guy. More than the film that you just saw. There's many people that have filmed a wave going across the moon. What was unique about this particular guy uh, who's, who had a, a channel, I think it was Crow 777, um, was that he got to the point where he could predict it because he'd been studying the moon so much. And he did predict, I think it was in 2014 or 2015, he predicted the day that another lunar wave would happen. Um, I just, you know, come on guys, we got video, video evidence of waves lapping across the moon, like it's a beach. I mean, I don't know. I mean, if you're not a believer <laughs> and you're watching this because you think you're going to find Enochian secrets to mysticism and magic, um, let me just point you back to the Bible, guys. Let me just mm -hmm. say, you know, the only power of magic that you're ever going to find that's worthy of anything in your life only comes from the Creator through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know, we've got the Creator on our side that loves us and wants us to know Him. He's made His creation plain and evident to us so that we're without excuse 
And here we have video evidence of his creation. And it's the opposite of what's been told to us by people like NASA and the government, people that do not believe in the God of the Bible. And they teach a completely different creation story. Or they do, Sean. What's worse is they do, and they're trying to trick us into believing the opposite. What's, oh, I'm sorry, what's that? I, do, I think that they do believe in the God of the Bible. I mean, they hate him, and they want us to not believe the words of the God of the Bible. Because, That's better explained. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's many that work in the organizations that they do that, that don't believe in it. But I think ob it's obvious to me that the higher-ups know. And they're, part of the deception is to create this alternative godless uh, model that they can present to, to thwart us from trusting in Yahweh's word, which is the truth. Yeah, and unfortunately, there's you know, it's only been a a reemergence, if you will, of this uh, uh, people taking a deep look at all the descriptions given to us in Scripture and also in the Book of Enoch about the creation and about um, all the descriptions of creation and how they do not line up with what we were taught in school yeah. um, about the Big Bang and about heliocentrism. So. It's sad, though, that there's still a lot of believers who fully love God and fully want to do what's right and have a great heart, but they're still under this, this idea, this deception of a model of creation that God did not describe. And they are fighting tooth and nail to hang on to that, to that belief. And that, but I just want to encourage you, if you're watching this and you hold to that belief, um, the people that told you that belief, they're enemies of God. <laughs> That's all it boils down to. They don't like him. They don't want to worship him. They don't love him. They've created a false narrative, and they've they've tricked a lot of people for a long time. But I think the father's completely ripping off those those blinders of for, through uh, a large portion of the body of Messiah. And I think that um, I just encourage you, if you're a believer in the Father and you're a believer in his Messiah, and you want to walk in his ways. I, I would encourage you to take a strong look at all the descriptions in Scripture about the creation, because it will, not only will it, will it help you understand more about the greater context of Scripture, of the, the, the house, everything's happening in, the story's taking place in, but it will also give you, in my opinion, a greater respect for the Creator and for His Messiah, who has to renew the creation at His return, because it gets messed up. So if you believe in the return of Messiah, you I would encourage you to understand the creation model that He comes back through. Because he uses that description of creation at his return. And if you don't understand what it's talking about, you're not going to have the greatest appreciation for his return and what happens on those on that day. Nor will you be able to explain it to those around you who don't believe. Yeah, I agree, Sean. I've told people before that um, if you want to understand eschatology and you want it to come alive to you, then you really need to start at the beginning and comprehend and believe in the literal descriptions and details surrounding the biblical creation model because that's the place in the storyline and everything that's contained within it, right? All the things that happen on the day of the Lord will start making way more sense when you comprehend that, A, we're not living in a heliocentric Big Bang universe or multiverse or whatever the next theories are, right? Right. If you can disregard that and keep your knee down from jerking up from wanting to believe this, what, what men and, and scientism are telling us today, if you can do that and you can trust the Father that what he says is truth and his truth is ultimate truth and there's no lies mixed into that, then you'll start to understand end times prophecy and the day of the Lord and the millennial reign, all of that. 
way more. And you'll understand the beginning and the creation model. It's a beautiful thing. Well said. Yeah. Um, so he, all right, so verse five, he sees a river of fire, okay, which is interesting because we saw a river of fire underneath, beneath the throne or around the throne in the previous chapters, right, in last episode. Um, in verse six, he's, uh, apparently this river of fire flows like water, discharges itself into the great sea towards the west. So wherever he is, wherever Enoch is right now, and viewing this, right, we know he's physically on earth, but this vision, wherever he's being shown this area in this vision, um, I don't think this is, to me, this is an indicator it's not on the ground because we don't see any rivers of fire flowing into a great sea towards the west. Do you see that at all? I mean, do you see any correlation with what we see in our modern life? Yeah, no, I, I see that as being a descriptor above our heads somewhere. Yeah. I don't I don't see that anywhere on our earth plane. Yeah. So that means there's a great sea above our heads. <laughs> yeah. Which is fascinating. Um and I saw great rivers and came to the great river to the great darkness and went to the place where no flesh walks. And I don't know what that means, to be honest with you. I don't know what the great darkness is or the great rivers. Uh the place where no flesh walks. This has always puzzled me. Um yeah. I have no idea either, man. Which could be why he's having to see this stuff in a, in a vision, and he's not physically there. Because <laughs> he's flesh, right? Yeah. Uh, verse 7, I saw the mountains of the darkness of winter, and the place where all the waters of the deep flow. I saw the mouths of all the rivers of the earth, and the mouth of the deep. So, I, again, is he on the earth? Is it, Now, here's the question that I would have for the translator. Is when we see the word earth used, that's a modern word, isn't it, Ken? It is, Yeah. Well, I think people should be aware of that. Um, the word arets, 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 right? And that's not, and that's can be used of the term land. Just, just generically, that's what it means. It, and we use this term earth and all the connotation involved in earth. But oh, when it's saying the word earth here, is it talking about the actual earth of what we know to be, you know, all the continents and everything? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, I, I think that's a great question. I think, I think you're right. I think we might have some translator bias here with this. Um, you know, them thinking, well, maybe Enoch is on the earth plane that we're all on right now and you should be shown some of these things. But yeah, it's the Haaretz, land, land masses, earth by name. Um, It'd be the land of, you know, above, just whatever land above it was. Well, contextually, I think that's where he is. That's right. I think what, that's what he's being shown. So therefore, contextually, this word earth is not talking about what we experience and what we travel on, but it's talking about the land above. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just think that there's, see, to me, that's why I love looking for context in the paragraphs and in this overall story, because you can you can easily discern translator bias. That's right. And it's maybe we say the word bias, but sometimes it's just misunderstanding. The translator comes across it, and he thinks he's talking about the ground, and he doesn't realize the biblical creation model. So he just is going to use the word earth. Yeah, Sean, it's, it's an interesting thing to think about is, is that we're at the mercy of translators a lot of times, right? Yeah, we are. We're reading what they think is going on here when there could be different words being used based on the context. And 
a lot of times they they do translate off of their preconceived ideas and, and presuppositions and stuff and it is a hard job i wouldn't want it that would be a very hard job a, you know a daunting task and so I, I commend these men who who desire to do a good job and, and i'm sure for the most part none of them have nefarious agendas behind messing with texts and stuff like that but yeah we do see in a lot of cases that um unfortunately they're men they don't have it all and they, they may have understanding in ancient languages and stuff like that but that doesn't mean they understand the context fully right that's exactly right it seems to be um two different types of of uh, biblical scholars those who can dissect a word and those who can understand context yeah because i can i can tell you what the words are referring to by the context but if you try to create the context from a misunderstanding of the or just from one word right that's when we run into what we call eisegesis or we run into false doctrines it's because people are taking one word and they don't understand the context and they start creating a narrative that doesn't fit the rest of the descriptions so that's where you know you're watching honor of kings on the channel kingdom of context so one of my main focuses is when i read scripture is to try to look at all the context match it with the definitions of the words and come to the conclusion that's logical with what's being told in the story as a whole so we can understand if there's a mistranslation or just it's not even in this case it's not even a mistranslation it's just the the modern connotation of the word earth brings us a different mental picture and yeah. therefore we get confused with the rest of the context of actually where Enoch is seeing this stuff and it's not on the ground it's above the firmament yeah and it or it could be on a ground but just not our ground it will exactly right <laughs> So yeah, that's why you know different level of land, if you will. It's in a different area, yeah. so it's not what we see because um, he saw he sees the place of the luminaries, the treasuries of the stars. You know what I mean? So he's not here on the ground, guys. Um, that's he's up, he's up above directionally. So now he he does go to a different direction that I think is below our ground plane in chapters to come, but I think that will be shown. I think there'll there'll be you know markers that'll reveal to us that it's he's in a different area. Yeah, but, and those will be episodes to come. It's been good. <laughs> and I think Ken, I think that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, we've gone through you know, what three different chapters, and there's just so much just in these three different chapters that we've compared back with different versions, different places in Scripture, everywhere from Genesis one to Revelation twenty one. Look, we've almost spanned uh, as far as you know trying to piece together what we see in the modern American canon of 66 with the mentions, the context, the words, and uh, some of the teachings that we've read in these three chapters here in Enoch 15 through 17. Um, we're just finding more and more veneration for the book of Enoch and possibly even from the Messiah's words himself. So this has been a good episode. Uh, I hope everyone got a lot out of it. Um, as always, Ken, thanks for joining me, man. Yeah, thank you. It was a great conversation and we just keep coming across juicy details and, and I just love how the father works. You know, if we have a passion for his word and, and to search things out, he's going to show us some amazing things in, in these texts. And so I'm looking forward to chapters ahead and to you guys who've been watching. Thank you so much. And if you have any questions, please leave them in the comments. We'd love to address some of your questions if you have any, or if you have um, just any, anything, if you disagreed with, with, Anything that Sean and I have already talked about up to this point, please, you know, we're not averse to hearing alternative um, perspectives and stuff like that. So, yeah.
Thanks a lot, Sean. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thanks again, Ken. And uh, guys, thanks for joining us here in Honor of Kings. If you haven't already subscribed, go ahead and do that. Tap the bell for notifications for new videos. Uh, like, share, and subscribe on social media. For We also have Honor of Kings, a Facebook page where we go and discuss extra biblical texts. You're welcome to join that. It's an open group, and uh, you're welcome to go visit us there as well. Um, otherwise, we hope to see you back here next week where we'll be diving deeper into the Book of Enoch, and we're going to actually run into uh, more descriptions about the good angels next week, as well as uh, more descriptions about land above us. So I don't, um, I don't know why you wouldn't want to join us because it's some of the more controversial episodes that we're going to be doing in the Book of Enoch. All right, guys. Good, so goodbye for now, and we will see you next week. Thank you. Hi, I'm Sean Griffin. Welcome to Kingdom in Context.